Hello and welcome everybody. I hope you are all staying safe and well or have managed to somehow get some sun in this lovely, lovely weather. I'd like to welcome you all to the series of meetings that we've been having. If you've been joining us before, you know the Socialist Workers Party has had a series of meetings surrounding the coronavirus or that you can find on YouTube. If this is your first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy this meeting. Today's meeting is titled Mental Distress in the Era of Lockdown and Pandemic. I am Elizabeth Adovo. I will be chairing this meeting today. I am from the Socialist Workers Party branch in South London. We are very lucky to have brilliant speakers here today. We've got three brilliant speakers for you today. Um, doing panels and questions. Our first speaker is Ian Ferguson. He is an author of Politics and of Politics of the Mind, Marxism and Mental Distress. We also have Ellen Clifford, who is a disability activist and author of the book, The War on Disabled People. And then we also have Katie Taunt, who is a consultant and a trainer in trauma informed practices and has worked with children and child adolescent services. So three brilliant speakers for you today. You were all really eager to answer your questions. So please make sure that you are sending us your comments, your thoughts, your questions. The speakers will be able to answer some questions later on in the group. Also, please make sure that you're sharing and liking. We wanna keep you guys engaged. We wanna reach as many people as possible. So please make sure um, that you're doing all of that. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Ellen. Ellen is a disability activist and the author of the book, The War on Disabled People. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yes, yeah, so as you've explained, I'm gonna be speaking this afternoon from the perspective of being a disabled activist. I'm a person who lives with severe and enduring mental distress, and I identify as a disabled person under the social model of disability. And for anyone unfamiliar with, with that concept, the social model is a way of understanding disability that draws a distinction between impairments, impairments being the conditions we live with, and disability, which is the oppression that society places on top of our impairments through the way it's organized in ways that exclude and oppress us. So a disabled person is a person who's disabled by society due to having any form of impairment, and that includes living with mental distress. So the experience of lockdown for disabled people has, has been very mixed, actually, and, and my own experiences, my personal experiences illustrate that. So for me, lockdown occurred just after I'd started an intensive therapy programme, I waited years to get on, and right in the middle of a very difficult meds switch over, and those were all fairly problematic things. But on the other hand, I have to say I'm much prefer living under lockdown to normal life because uh, it avoids a lot of the situations that I find unbearable. And I'm also part of strong disabled activist support networks that we've built up over 10 years of austerity that have enabled us to continue organizing as people's lives become ever more restricted due to cuts and loss of income through welfare reform. So lockdown has, this may sound strange, but some disabled people have been talking about the positives that it's brought to them. Some have described now feeling more included in, in society than ever before. Um, people who are housebound or communicate more easily through technology than face-to-face, -face, for example, are suddenly talking about access to joining meetings and social events, the, the same as anyone else. For others, it's meant their experience of life where their day-to-day -day life opportunities are severely limited by outside barriers has become a mainstream experience that they now share with non-disabled people rather than feeling that it marginalizes them. 
In giving evidence to a parliamentary select committee, a DPAC member, Nathan Lee Davies, last week commented, the impact of COVID-19 on my life has been minimal, to be honest. Not being able to enjoy an active life is routine for me, so it hasn't really been much of a change to study the four walls of my bungalow. The response from many disabled people to lockdown has been welcome to my world. I've heard many people say that. And then you have other issues such as the temporary sensation of benefit conditionality and sanctions, which was found by the University of Essex in a research project I was involved with to be quite literally mad making. I mean, that's been an enormous relief for many benefit claimants, as has the pause on disability benefit assessments and the uprating of universal credit by £20 a week. And all these measures introduced by the Department for Work and Pensions have significantly alleviated worry and distress for large numbers of benefit claimants for the time being. They're things that campaigners have argued and fought hard for for, for 10 years have suddenly come into place now just for the time being. But at the same time, of course, lockdown and pandemic have introduced new and additional barriers in everyone's lives, including disabled people, while at the same time, of course, depriving so many people of life itself. Many mental health services have simply stopped running for the time being. Things like our crisis cafes have shut. Access to social workers has become much more restricted. People are left not knowing where they can get support or what to do. We're hearing that there's no social distancing happening on mental health wards. And for example, in my local area, the, the Maudsley, some of the acute wards there were emptied out to make room for COVID patients who were overspilling from, from nearby King's Hospital. And of course, those patients, the COVID patients needed treatment, they needed space. But of course, there were big concerns about people being you know, literally emptied out uh, into the community before those people were ready to step down and what kind of support were they gonna get? So whereas lockdown relieves many of the day-to-day -day anxieties experienced by those of us with, with, with certain forms of mental distress, for others it presents conditions that can more easily lead to experiences of depression and, and psychosis. Steep rises in domestic violence under lockdown conditions are also of course a major issue of concern. In this month's issue of Socialist Review, uh, Molly Doherty's written a very good piece and she says, while in lockdown or self-isolation, women and children are likely to be spending concentrated periods of time with perpetrators, potentially escalating the threat of domestic abuse and further restricting their freedom. In the early weeks of lockdown, domestic abuse killings in England and Wales more than doubled. And after me, I think Katie will be speaking more about the particular um, adverse impacts on children and young people. And then I'd say that all of this needs to be understood within the wider context of 10 years of cuts to frontline mental health services and domestic violence services at a time of rising demand. Numbers seeking treatment from 2010 to 2016 went up from 500,000 to 1.7 million. At the same time, the 600 million pounds was slashed from mental health trust budgets. And over the same period, 34,000 beds in acute services vanished. The situation for children and young people in escalating levels of mental distress is particularly concerning. The number of referrals uh, by schools in England seeking mental health treatment for pupils rose by more than a third within three years between 2014 to 15 and 2017 to 18, with 56% over half of those referrals coming from primary schools. So that's very young children. Hospital admissions for self-injury among young women doubled over the two decades to 2018, while self-poisonings among 10 to 24-year-olds tripled from 1998 to 2014. So rocketing demand for services at the same time as they were being cut. 
Then we have the pandemic and the pandemic has sharply highlighted the inequalities that were already existent in society. Uh, we have the issue of the disproportionate impact on black and Asian minority ethnic communities. And we also have disabled people being told that they won't receive medical treatment even if they do fall ill because they're not a priority. At a time that's enormously difficult for all of us, disabled activists and health workers have had to challenge NHS guidelines that sought to impose blanket rules about which groups of people are and aren't a priority for life-saving treatment. Over recent weeks, we've rightly heard a bit more in the media about the scandalous situation where care home residents are being left to be wiped out by COVID-19 and their workers put at serious risk through lack of PPE. But an issue that's still been largely overlooked is the situation facing disabled people living in their own homes in the community with workers coming in and out every day to provide their essential daily living support. Guidance for this group of people came out more than five weeks after official advice came out for the wider social care sector and more than a month and a half after the Department of Health and Social Care published its first COVID-19 action plan and only after persistent campaigning by disabled people and their organisations. So disabled people living in the community weren't even an afterthought. They had to fight for their very existence to be acknowledged by the government. And those disabled people are still without PPE. And according to, to the guidance that did come out, it's up to them to buy their own PPE despite global shortages, spiralling costs, and the fact that the majority of those people live on benefits. So there's no question the lockdown is placing a terrible strain on the mental well-being of our communities, putting victims of domestic violence at even greater risk. But the idea that some people's lives, those of older and disabled people, are dispensable and can be sacrificed for the greater good, or indeed that society is better off without us, it is unacceptable and reflective of, I would say, the kind of eugenicist views that we know that people like Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings hold. As I said at the People's Assembly rally this week, the deaths of disabled friends and loved ones, day after day at the moment, we're losing some of our strongest campaigners, just, just keep on coming through the pandemic, whether that's been through the virus itself or as a result of an overstretched NHS that's unable to respond to pre-existing impairments and illness. And I'd just like to pay tribute to all those comrades and friends that we've lost over the recent weeks and who will forever be missed. But if lockdown ends too soon, before it's safe to do so, then there's going to be many, many more of those avoidable deaths. The right-wing media have been talking about the end of lockdown in terms of a return to freedom, to sunny walks in the park and day trips to the beach. But what it would mean in reality is going back to the daily grind, surrounded by yet more death, exposing key workers and frontline staff to increased pressures and risk. And all of that will be for whose benefit, for the boss's benefit. So to finish with, I think I want to address the question of what we can do at the moment. I think we need to keep on fighting for PPE because so many people whose lives are at risk are still without it. We need to push for testing, for frontline workers to be kept safe and for no premature end to lockdown. And meanwhile, I think we can help our communities by encouraging new and accessible ways of reaching out, of staying in touch, of interacting while building our political networks to help people understand what is happening why and whose different interests are being served. And then we must use these networks to make sure that we don't go back to so-called normal life after COVID-19, but that we fight for a new society, one where we're all included and valued and where people come before profit. Solidarity.
solidarity indeed thank you so much um Ellen, that was really insightful to understand how this is affecting the disabled community. I see that on Facebook around, we've got around 320 people watching. Let's keep it going, keep on sharing. Please keep sending your questions through. We really wanna answer your, and see your thoughts and your comments. Um, I would really like to hear from Katie. Katie, as a consultant and trainer in trauma-enforced practices, you've worked in education, social care settings, you've also worked in residential care homes and um, child and adolescent mental health services. How is this pandemic affecting those areas? Great, am I unmuted? I am. Fantastic. Great, so thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I had no idea I was gonna be here till yesterday afternoon. Um, so I hope what I've got to share is going to be useful and I'm really interested in, in joining the debate around this. Um, so as Elizabeth beautifully introduced me, my, um, my day job these days is supporting social care, education, child and adolescent mental health in making sense of young people's behaviour through the lens of trauma. Um, so what that really means is, so the first question when I was asked this to think about uh, the impact and the level of mental distress and the types of mental distress that children and young people in lockdown um, might be experiencing, I thought really to be sort of upfront about how those of us who are working in trauma practice make sense of child mental health in the first place. And we make sense of it as children's emotional and behavioural reactions are as a consequence of the things that have happened to them. Their life experiences and the way in which they've adapted to survive the environment they're in, whatever that may be. So that it kind of is not coming from nowhere, it's coming from the, the seedbed of the families they're living in and dependent on the uh, dangers or risks that are in those um, family settings and the resources that they have to manage them. So, you know, I'm very much going to be talking from, from, from that lens. So we need to get curious about how children might be surviving at the moment, what adaptations they may be needing to make. And, and Ellen very beautifully brought in, you know, some of the dangers that kids are going to be living with that some children are going to be exposed to more risk and more danger living where there's domestic violence or drug and alcohol misuse um, and in situations where the families do not have the resources to manage lockdown. And by resources, I, I'm not just thinking about, you know, having a garden and thinking about whether or not, which is also important, so I want to put that in there as well, but whether the adults around them have the resources to manage their anxieties to contain their own anxieties and to offer safety to children. So, you know, what, what happens is, is what we're thinking about really if this is a time of trauma for, for all of us. And in thinking about trauma, I'm thinking about the impact on the nervous system. Um, and I'm gonna be talking much more from sort of an emotional rather than a political point of view. So I, I hope that will be helpful. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote uh, The Body Keeps the Score, you know, talked very clearly recently about how we have the conditions for trauma. Now, the preconditions for trauma, whether that's post-traumatic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or developmental trauma, tend to be a loss of connection, the loss of safety, 
a loss of predictability, a sense that this will go on forever, a loss of the sense of purpose. And if you apply that to what's happening now, where routines and rituals have been dissolved for children, um, where there is a real threat out there. And I think that's another really important thing that we talk a lot about anxiety. If you have a real threat out there, you know, a real threat to your well-being, your family's well-being, granny's well-being, um, actually anxiety or a turned on nervous system is an entirely appropriate response. That's not a mental health condition. That's appropriate. There is a risk. Um, so thinking about in, in planning and supporting um, our children and young people, how we can address those areas that um, mean that this event can be survived emotionally by children and not become an imprint on their psyche that means that uh, behaviours of anxiety and of low mood and that distress needs to be perpetuated. We can manage it if we have the resources to manage it. The other thing I, I really want to think about was the fact that it's very different. Again, Ellen brought this in as well. It's very different for each child. Now, what's happening, their experience of lockdown is very different. Um, and I was talking to a colleague about this and we were saying if some kids will not have set foot in a supermarket for the entire lockdown. Other kids will have been in supermarkets with parents who are anxious and holding them tight and letting them know that it's dangerous. Other people will have been in supermarkets and they'll be the children of the guy who's leaning across everybody who doesn't think there's something going on. So their experiences will be different. Um, in our local supermarket, there was a guy wearing a full ventilator mask. What's that like when you're five or six? And there's fear in the air. So um, I'm particularly interested in the work of um, Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory. I'm, I'm just referencing these in case people get curious and want to go there. Um, and we're talking really about neuroseptity. So I've already said that the um, fear and anxiety reside in the nervous system, as of course to safety. And if your parents are anxious, if there's fear in their nervous systems, you will feel it. If you think about walking down the road with a parent who's frightened of dogs, you see a dog, parent pulls you closer. And without saying a word, your nervous system from their anxiety and their tension communicates this is dangerous. Now, if you are lucky enough to be walking down the street with your child and you pull them close because somebody else is coming by, you're sending this message that other people are dangerous. And that's not a criticism, there's truth in that. But thinking about what's happening in children's nervous systems. So kids are going to have very different experiencing depending on what their resources are. Now, there are some obvious things that we could work out, the physical resources. If there are seven of you living in a two bedroom flat without a garden, that's going to present a whole pile of challenges um, in terms of lack of space. Think about adolescents for whom really at this point they need to be moving away from families who are now clamped into relationship with their family at a distance that is physically uncomfortable. But it's not just the, the, the physical resources. If you're in a house with a, a garden in your own bedroom and two completely emotionally unavailably available parents, you may um, be um, doing far worse 
than the child who's in cramped conditions with parents who are able to contain, who are able to say, this is scary and hold you through it and talk about it. So yeah, what I'm saying, and I'm working quite a lot at the moment in uh, with various London boroughs, thinking about how we might get kids back to school. It's really, we need to be really curious about what do you just live through? What did you need to do survive in the place that you were in? Um, I, so I wanted to sort of just talk about that idea that, that we can do it if we can resource the adults. You know, um, again, Ellen was saying that there's been a, a loss of services and I'm working with youth offending teams who can't get to their kids, with social workers who've got real child protection concerns who can't reach the children they're worried about. Uh, CAMS has largely gone online, child and adolescent mental health services. Um, so it's it's a piece about, you know, how do we how do we help adults regulate? How do we think adults in the community, when they start to come back, really, please put academics on hold. Please recognise that the first thing you're going to have to do is make your staff feel safe, your children feel safe, and the parents feel safe to send your children. Because nobody's going to be learning any geography, anyhow, if the tension isn't paid to that nervous system. I also want to say that I've, I've got some great news from foster carers that I'm working with, some foster carers who are having the experience of providing the nurturing one-to-one -one care that some complexly traumatised children need when they are with their carers every minute of every day. The children I work with with social anxiety, where school is a source of suffering and distress, are doing really well. They're getting to be at home. And my real hope for the future is that we stop putting children in situations that are distressing. We pay attention to schooling and education in a place that feels safe for their nervous system. And we think first, before we do anything, does this child feel safe? Um, I've never met a child who's crazy. I've told them many, many times that. I've only ever met children whose emotional reactions and behaviors make sense, given the things that they've had experienced and the ways in which they've learned to survive them. And I think that's my time. And I'm very happy to answer questions. I don't know whether I've covered everything I meant to. I hope that was helpful. Over to you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Katie. It's just so good to hear someone who's like just so passionate. It just came off really great. That was really insightful. Um, Ian Ferguson, I would really like to hear your um, thoughts and your stance on this as an author of the book, Politics of the Mind, Marxism and Mental Distress. What are your thoughts of this? Thanks very much, Elizabeth, and I really enjoyed the two previous presentations. I think uh, I, I want to start with the word that's probably been bandied about most, more than any other in this crisis, and that's, and that's the word unprecedented. And I don't know about you, but I tend to feel very cynical when I hear people like Dominic Raab using that word because it usually is an excuse for their failure. Uh, to provide us with the necessary PPE and, and to keep us safe. But there are clearly uh, aspects of this crisis that are unprecedented. And obviously, its impact on the global economy. But also what I want to suggest today uh, is that its impact, its potential impact on mental health is also pretty unprecedented. Uh, just to take some of the more obvious stressors, uh, within the space of a couple of months, 
uh, millions of people across the globe uh, have suddenly been left without jobs and income. In the US, 33 million people in seven weeks have lost their jobs. So clearly that's a huge increase in poverty, unemployment, and that's gonna affect people's mental health. Billions of people have been forced into quarantine and self-isolation, often cut off from family, often cut off from friends. And some of the effects of that are likely to be an increase in anxiety, increase in confusion, loneliness, and also the, the, the increase in, in domestic violence that, that, that Ellen talked about. Again, all of us have been forced to come to terms with the fact that, uh, that those we love and, and that we are suddenly physically uh, very vulnerable, may become ill and may possibly die. Uh, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people uh, will lose loved ones uh, long before their time and often will be unable to grieve properly for them. One of the most painful stories, I think, in the early days was the story of 13-year-old uh, Ishmael Mohammed Abdul Wabad, a 13-year-old who died alone without his mother being allowed to be present or even to be at his funeral. And, and, and finally, there is, of course, the uncertainty uh, of or the lack of certainty about knowing how long this will go on for when it will end. So it's a bit of a kind of tsunami of, of, of stressors. As, as, as one uh, trauma uh, expert said, the COVID crisis has combined many mental health stressors that have been studied before in other disasters, but which have never been consolidated in one global crisis. There is research on how humans cope with quarantine, with mass disasters, with ongoing stressors, but never on all three. So I think to start off, it's, it, it, it's really hard to say how these multiple stresses and traumas will play out. I think as Ellen has quite rightly said, for some people not having to go to work or being able to have, have some time to themselves may actually be a positive thing. But I think probably for the majority, uh, actually uh, it, it's gonna be very, very hard. We know, for example, that during the so-called Spanish flu crisis in 1918, there was a significant increase in all forms of mental distress. And certainly uh, the report that came out from the Office for National Statistics last week uh, showed that something like half the British population reported uh, increased anxiety uh, as, as, as a, since the beginning of this crisis, the beginning of the lockdown. Uh, probably not that, that surprising. So really what I want to look at is how we, and particularly how we as socialists should, should respond to this. Uh, and I think the, the first point in making the other speakers have also made the point is that as with every other aspect of this crisis, uh, we are not all in it together. Uh, on the contrary, uh, the divisions and the inequalities of capitalism are played out much more sharply during this crisis. So four times as many black and Asian minority ethnic people are, are, are dying as white people. Uh, the 25% increase in domestic violence. And while it's certainly true that anyone, uh, even, even the royals, can experience uh, distress, I don't think you can begin to compare the mental health pressures on, say, Prince William and Kate Middleton, who, who are regularly broadcasting from the, the splendid self-isolation of Kensington Palace, telling us how to manage our health. I don't think we can compare that to the pressures on the young lone parent in a council flat trying to cope with young kids, or to health and social care workers being sent out on a daily basis uh, without, adequate, without adequate PPE. And we know that double the number of working class people are dying as those in, in, in wealthier groups. So that, that's the first point. We're not all in it together as far as our mental health is concerned. 
I think the second thing we, we, we need to, to argue is that we should not be over-medicalizing uh, this, this crisis. Uh, in reality, feeling sad or angry or confused, I think, are very normal human reactions uh, to, to, to what, we're, what is going on just now. If you're not anxious, you're probably not watching the, the news. So we should be resisting attempts, uh, by, whether by biomedical psychiatry or by big pharma, uh, to, 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 to exploit, to come up with new, new, new syndromes, chronic COVID syndrome or whatever, uh, or to be up, trying to, to medicalize, coming up with new drugs uh, in the same way that we've seen companies like Johnson & Johnson uh, exploiting the pain and distress of working class Americans uh, through, through, through the opioid crisis. So I think we, sh we should reject that. Uh, I think we need to fight for, for more and better both now and after this crisis, fight for more and better uh, mental health services based, as Ellen said, on a social model of health and not just more drugs. And just one other thing in saying that, I think we should be arguing for the nationalisation of social care, including community mental health services, because private services and private residential care has failed miserably to, to, to cope with this, with this crisis. But the third point I want to make is that some people have suggested that uh, we're going to come out of this crisis seeing a huge explosion uh, of, of, of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, a bit like the epidemic of, of shell shock after the, uh, after the First World War. And certainly God knows that we are already seeing a quite enormous uh, level of, of, of loss, of grief, uh, and, and there's no doubt that, 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 that the support services will be absolutely crucial. But I think we actually have to say that as well as individual trauma and personal trauma, uh, I think, and, you know, and Katie referred to this, I think we are currently living through a collective trauma. And I think that also allows for the possibility of collective responses. And I want to just give some examples of that. Of that. Writing about the, the fires uh, in California in 2018-2019, the result of climate change that destroyed thousands of homes, killed dozens of people, desecrated uh, thousands of acres of land. In response to these fires, one survivor wrote, communal trauma creates immediate community support. Suffering is rapidly acknowledged and local resources activated. Within two days of the fire, a handful of locals established a makeshift crisis support center in the backyard lot of a convenience store. People donated clothing, offered housing, brought cooked food, coordinated support systems that no local or state organization then provided. The Facebook community went into overdrive with emotional support groups. Imagine this, strangers pouring out their hearts, strangers opening up on their own. And I think we can also point to other similar examples. So for example, both the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matters collectivized the personal experience, the personal trauma of women who'd been abused, of black families and individuals in the US, and turned them against the perpetrators, turned them against the system which, which protected them. So where trauma can be collectivized, where it can be made transparent and shared, then I think it can become a source of strength and resistance in the same way as I think in this, in, in this trauma, the, the, the grief and the anger and so on can be directed against the, the, the people who I think criminally have failed to protect our lives uh, over, over the past period. And I think that, that's not an abstract thing. I think over the past, really since the crisis began in Britain, we've seen the possibilities for that kind of collective response from the very, very early days, hundreds of thousands of people volunteered to help vulnerable neighbours to set up Facebook support groups, really given the, the lie to the Tory claim that, that, that we're all basically selfish or that there's no such thing as society. 
More recently, we're seeing the development, I think very, very important development of collectives of resistance, of local action groups, which are trying to link up these community organizations uh, with, 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 with trade unions. And at a national level, we're seeing developments like the the people before profit, the health COVID workers action group, social work action network and so on, making the links uh, both locally and globally. And it seems to me that these groups are important, both to challenge the Tories for their criminal handling of this, but I think also, I think they're important in terms of our mental health. One, one aspect common to most forms of mental health is a sense of powerlessness, often a sense of isolation. So actually I think linking people up is also positive for our mental health. And I just want to say, finally, uh, I think ideas are important. How people make sense, how they explain the current situation uh, has an impact on their mental health. Research, for example, by academics at, at, at King's College in London found that 25% of people interviewed felt that they could tolerate a longer period of lockdown without any real harm to their mental health because they saw it as necessary, because they believed it was necessary to protect their own mental health, but also because they believed in the, the NHS and supporting the NHS. So in the jargon, these beliefs, these ideas uh, were a protective factor in terms of their mental health. And it seems to me, similarly, that socialist ideas can also help people in this current situation by providing a political explanation for this crisis, which locates it not in the actions of a pathogen, uh, but, but, but rather in a political and then an economic system that always uh, prioritizes profit over our lives. And finally, I just want to say that I think socialists are also important uh, in providing that explanation, but also in giving in giving hope. Uh, the, great, the great Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky called the Socialist Party uh, the party of hope. And it seems to me that, that part of our role is to challenge the, the passivity and the scapegoating and the despair that can lead to depression by showing that it doesn't have to be like this. We do not have to tolerate one existential crisis after another, that another world is possible and that we can end this, capital, this hellish capitalist treadmill. Brilliant, thank you so much again, Ian, for that such like concise breakdown of such a complex topic. Thank you so much. And thank you to all our speakers for that brilliant introduction. I can see over Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, we've almost hit 400 people viewing. So please continue to view and watch and share and like and comment and sending your questions through. We wanna answer as many of them as possible. Um, I will start the first round of questions though. We've got a few. So I will start with the first one. The first question comes from Julie from York. And she says, when schools eventually reopen, they are talking about social distancing being implemented. I think social distancing for young children would cause mental distress. I work in early years children, I work in early years, children need physical contact from, from comfort and reassurance from staff. They also use it to socialize with each other. What do the panel think of this? Our second question comes from Jim from Dundee, and he says the NHS mental health care services are clearly broke and nearly non-existent in some areas like Tyside, Scotland. Can we really fix it and how? And our third question for this round is from Bia in Stoke, and she says, what do you think about this notion of building resilience? Is this a way of telling people to deal with the injustices and irrationality of capitalist society instead of addressing the root cause of mental distress? So those are our three questions. I'm going to ask Katie if you can come back 
on some of those. Great. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, so I, I was busy sort of noticing some things. I absolutely resonate with how are we going to socially distance children? Til children need contact. Little kids, you know, the way in which you think about how we're going to make them feel safe. You know, that safety is, is, is physical. We, we communicate with nervous systems through hugs and through touches. I have no idea. I mean, this is speculation at the moment. Um, what I, what I really am trying to get across the boundaries into schools at the moment is you have got to pay attention to internal safety. If we have to do social distancing in schools, um, we need to think about how do we make it feel safe? How can we have music or games? How can we focus on, does this child feel safe enough to be here? And if we can't touch, what else can we do? Um, I, I think it's, it's a horrendous idea. It makes my, my I notice you know, my nervous system go, oh, how would we do that? But we have to not just think about physical safety, we have to think about emotional safety. Because if kids don't feel safe, they won't learn anything you're trying to teach them anyway. And if parents don't feel safe, I can't know how you would let your child go to school, particularly the little ones. If we're looking at our little ones who might be starting school in September, having missed out on the socialization, the building of a, uh, you know, stepping into the world and stepping out again. And I'm also not sure how parents would do it. So I think schools have got to pay attention to the emotional safety of the parents as well. Um, I don't know how we do that. Um, do you want me to comment on more questions or stop there and pass on? I don't know how you work this. Yeah, you can you can carry on commenting oh, if you have. Going. Okay. I, I kind of missed the middle question, but building resilience got my energy, um, and um, I, I have a very strong personal reaction to it. Um, I find it deeply irritating, the uh, um, attention on building resilience. Um, it's like, you know, we try to make our 12-year-olds build resilience. You know, 12-year-olds learn to cope with things when they are little, if their parents can. So if you want to be building resilience anywhere, we want to be resourcing our parents, and that may be practically and emotionally, to be the adults that our children need. Otherwise, we put it all into our children somehow or another lacking resilience when actually our community didn't give it to them. Um, I don't expect a child to manage COVID-19, manage lockdown. I expect their parents to be resourced to manage it so that they can then manage their child. Um, it, it just puts it all in the you know, person, in this child that has to be resilient we teach kids to be resilient. I can't remember, I think it might be Bruce Perry who talks about if children aren't resilient, it's because we didn't help them to be resilient when they were little and we didn't build resilient communities to grow resilient children. Maybe I'll pause there. And I'm really sorry to the person who asked the second question that I was so busy trying to take in the details from the first one, I missed it. No worries, thank you very much. Maybe Ian, who's going to come in next, can address the second question for us and his intake on all three, actually. OK, thanks, Elizabeth. I, I agree with everything that Katie has just said about schools. There's a lovely French poster, which people may have seen, that's going around in France saying, our children uh, are not laboratory rats. 
right? So they're not going to test out whether or not COVID, COVID works in them. I, I, I think it's interesting. I think the thing about getting kids back to school, it probably also just reflects the Tory view of education. Isn't it dreadful if they're not learning their sums? Isn't it dreadful if they're not doing, 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 doing arithmetic? So actually, I think it's encouraging. I mean, according to some of the papers in the past day or two, uh, the unions are beginning to get themselves organised to say that there'll be no early return to education. I think it's really important that the unions and parents group link up and say that the priority is the health, both physical and emotional, of children and parents, and not the Tories need to get them back so they can sit more exams. So we prioritise the needs of our children. In terms of the second question, the NHS mental health services, are they broke? Yes, I think they are broke. I don't think there's any question about it. It's highly surprising, uh, given the level of cuts, both to uh, NHS services and community-based mental health services. Uh, we've, we've, I've certainly involved many campaigns in Glasgow over the past few years to defend really fundamental mental health, uh, community-based mental health services, where the situation, uh, particularly in England, I think more than in Scotland, where people are having, having a, a mental health crisis sometimes have to travel hundreds of miles uh, to, 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 to get a bed. It's crazy stuff. So basically, you know, there, there can't be any kind of return to that kind of normal. Uh, and I do think, maybe beyond the scope of this discussion, but I do think that the, the mental health user movement in recent decades has developed really, really positive alternative ways whether it's the hearing voices networks, whatever, I think really positive ways of addressing mental health issues. So we need, but we need to fight as we always do uh, to, to, to protect and, and promote more and better services. I, I share Katie's view on, on, on resilience. I'm extremely suspicious of resilient and discourse. Was it Boris Johnson said we have to take it on the chin? What a lot of crap! That basically this is not about individual resilience or individual strength. We are all we are all our side is all in this together, uh, and, and, and I think it's not helpful to talk about it. You know, this is this is not a question of individual strength and weakness. They are inflicting a dreadful trauma on us, and we have to resist it collectively. And for that, we talk about collective rather than individual strength. Thank you very much, um, Ian. I'd really like to hear, Ellen, your thoughts on these three questions. So in terms of the, the first question about young children and social distancing, I was just going to add to that that certain disabled people who might uh, be nonverbal in terms of their communication or in terms of, of personal care support, social distancing in, in those situations is, is very difficult. And essentially what it comes down to is making sure that everybody is safe and there's the protective equipment there, which of course is it has been totally lacking. And listening to the workers um, about how to keep everyone safe and the, the best thing to do that while making sure that people get their basic needs met. Um, in terms of the, the mental health services, I agree with Ian that they were broken. Uh, before 2010, there was so much to campaign for. Um, in my personal experiences of using mental health services, the, uh, the service user movement did, did make gains over the years, but there was still so much more to, to campaign and fight for in terms of the way people are stigmatized, in terms of systematic racism inside mental health services. There was so much still to be done, but then the cuts came along, uh, welfare reform, which was taking away uh, the money that people needed to survive. And 
uh, a lot of uh, mental health campaigners um, have had so much of our time taken up with that. But the fact is that we still need to fight for something to make sure there's something there for us when we are in crisis. I was personally very cynical when Theresa May came out with her idea of crisis cafes and the tiny amount that was injected into the mental health system. It was like sticking a plaster over a gaping wound. But there's no question that, you know, that, that small amount of services that were provided on that have made a real difference to people's lives. So I think it's about fighting for everything we can get at the moment and then building towards something that actually is much better and based on a, a fundamentally different understanding uh, of people and mental health and I think everybody's covered a lot of the issues with the resilience model I am extremely against it I think it's incredibly offensive and it's a very dangerous distraction away from the real causes of the problems in our society uh, it's become something of a buzzword I see lots of policy documents coming out for example from uh, the GLA the Greater London Assembly the London Roadmap for Mental Health was fundamentally based on the resilience model the idea that all of us in the community have a responsibility for our own mental health and for building up own skills to maintain our mental health with the implication being that if we have poor mental health then it's our own fault for not having tried hard enough and I think that's a very dangerous position to start with a lot of workplaces are bringing in mindfulness training now I personally think you know individuals can benefit from learning mindfulness techniques uh, where we're choosing to do that ourselves um, but the idea of it being brought into workplaces to deal with workplace stress is again is, is pointing to the individual individual workers saying it's your own fault if you're stressed, nothing to do with us pressuring you um, and destroying your, your terms and conditions and making life at work unbearable. So I, I think the resilience model is very dangerous. Brilliant, thank you so much, um, Ellen. Um, please keep sharing. I see that loads of people are interacting. Let's keep it up, let's keep sharing. We've got lots more questions to um, have the panel answer. So I'm gonna go with the second round of questions that we have. Um, our first question comes from Isabel. She says, the number of university students who struggle with mental health is rising. So how can we make sure this change this changes post pandemic and that students now having to complete assessments and exams in lockdown are provided with enough support. Our second question comes from Jan who says, my big fear is that we will be the big pharma companies, that it will be the big pharma companies that will benefit from this crisis. How can we stop that? And our third question is from Roddy who says, Further to the previous question about building resistance, what do the panel think about the concept of well-being? Many of us working from home are contrary to the myth working harder than normal because there are far less chances to interact with workmates. Well-being is often emphasised by the same managers who refuse to provide risk assessments for the equipment that we need while singling out workers by bullying and harassment and micromanagement. So those are our three questions. I'm going to ask Ian if you can come in on those. Okay, th thanks, Elizabeth. Three, three really good questions. Uh, I think in terms of the first question from 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 Isabel, uh, there, there, there's no question that there, there, there has been a massive 
increase in uh, students experiencing mental health problems in recent years. And maybe that's not surprising. I think it's very intimately connected with what's been called the neoliberal university. Uh, the fact that universities are no longer uh, primarily places of learning and education, uh, but as far as the people who run them are concerned, the, not least the highly paid principals who are, you know, who are earning mega bucks, but basically they, they, they're, about, uh, they're, they're about making more, more money. And one aspect of that is that uh, students often get much less support from, from, from lecturers and staff, not because lecturers and other colleagues don't want to give that support, but actually because the other pressures in terms of publication, research, all sorts of work, the demands being made on them are increasing all the time. So there's less and less of a personal relationship, I think, between students and staff. Students been crammed into increasingly overcrowded uh, classrooms, having to pay tuition fees and all the rest of it. In terms of how we begin to change that situation, I think the hope lies with what we saw before this crisis started, which was the UCU strike. Because I think what was very clear is that the university lecturers up and down the country were not, were not only striking they should be striking over issues like pensions and so on, but are striking for, for, for decent conditions, for an end to fixed term contracts, to be able to give students a kind of education that they want to be able to give them. So I think the future after this crisis lies on, 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 on building on, on, on these strikes and developing collective unity uh, between uh, teaching staff and between students for the, to see the kind of, kind of education that we want to see. In terms of the second question uh, from, from Jan about, about Big Pharma, I don't think we should, I, mean, I'm, I have no doubt at the moment that big, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson, like Eli Lilly, are busy manufacturing some drug to get us through this crisis. Uh, it's not so long ago when, when they were bringing out the latest edition of the Psychiatric Bible, the DSM-5, that there was a serious attempt to, uh, to, 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 to medicalize or normal grief in other words, if after uh, two or three weeks after you've lost a loved one, you're still grieving, then actually you've got a mental disorder, therefore you need to take this pill. Uh, I think it's done untold damage, uh, whether it's through the increase in antidepressants or whatever. I mean, currently in Scotland, where I am, uh, almost one in five people are currently on antidepressants. Now, one would have thought if they're working well, we should see the levels of depression going down. Actually, we're not. Uh, so I think we need to... We need to challenge the, the, the pharmaceutical companies and, 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 and really build through, through, through meetings like this, through campaigning organizations for the kind of social model of mental health that Ellen, Ellen spoke about. In relation to, 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 to Roddy's point about well-being, uh, I think it's worth remembering that even before the coronavirus crisis started, we already had a crisis in mental health uh, where you know, hundreds of millions of people globally are experiencing depression and anxiety and all the rest of it. This is, this is not something that's just, this is not just a lot of faulty brains uh, or, 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 or chemical uh, malreactions. This is very much about people's living conditions and that includes their working conditions. Because one of the major contributory factors to mental ill health at the moment is work-related stress. Uh, and so I think people are rightly cynical. I agree with Ellen. I think, I think approaches like are, you know, mindfulness, yoga, whatever, people's personal solutions, solutions whatever works for you. Uh, personally, I find it great to have a small garden during this crisis. It helps. Of course it helps. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves that these kind of things or these kind of management strategies are really the problem. We have to address the root cause of the problem, which is workers been put under more and more pressure, zero hours contracts, uh, all these kind of uncertainties. And the only way we can deal with them is not at an individual level, but at a collective level. 
Thank you so much for that, Ian. Katie, what are your thoughts on these three questions? Great, thank you. And now that I've worked out, I can see the three questions, I can answer them all, which is good. Um, so the, the, the first one really from Isabel, um, and again, it's trying to build on the things that Ian's already said. So I try and add difference rather than just say, yes, I agree, um, or, or, or similarities. So the bit that I, th I think is really curious about mental health services for students who aren't exclusively, but predominantly in that 18 to 25 age group is that we have not got mental health services that are fit for purpose for young people whose brains are still growing, whose identity is still forming, um, and you know, recently touring universities um, and, and find asking about these things is there was a real sense of we will not involve your parents and we expect you to do this and we expect you to do that. And I'm saying, but these young people um, are in that group of space between um, adolescence and independence and at various different spectrums. So I would really like to see us pay attention post pandemic that this group of young people need a different set of services. They do not slot into adult mental health services in the same way as people sort of towards the end or the middle of their lives do. Um, so that's what I'd like to see happen. I'd like to see that um, we they have connection and we think about the importance of connecting young people to each other. Uh, just for interest, because I've been touring universities, actually sort of to look at universities for one of my children. Um, what really struck me was the lack of communal eating um, and thinking about the impact of that on mental health. Uh, many years ago, people going to university were always part of eating together. Also, even if you'd seen number, nobody all day, you saw somebody um, in the communal halls. And I, I got curious about what removal of those kind of communal spaces might do for young people. You know, if you haven't seen somebody for a couple of days over breakfast, um, so I got curious about that. Um, number two, uh, Jan. Yeah, my, I, I join Ian with his fears there. And what do I think will, will change that? I think it is the throwing away of the DSM-5 in some part. Um, and um, the work that I'm seeing happening, because, of course, I go to talk to people who are interested in trauma-informed practice, is that when young people are admitted to uh, inpatient psychiatric care, for example, there is a push in some areas for people to, to get less hung up on the labels and the medication and just start with that trauma-informed inquiry of how do you make sense? How does the distress that you're experiencing now make sense given what you've lived through? Um, and, um, okay. and actually that, that sort of feeds into this idea that, that Child and adolescent mental health isn't about what do we do when young people develop uh, mental health problems. It's about how every part of people working with young people adjust their services and their interventions so that they feel safe. So um, I like, love Roddy's question. I've been, I've been working with various uh, social work networks and fostering networks, and I'm hearing this time and time again, particularly people in social care, which is the group I know about, are working harder than ever because their anxieties about the um, people they're supposed to be working with and can't get to mean they're making more phone calls. They're on the phone for as long as is necessary. And, and I've been talking with um, them and management that 
it's interesting that one of the resilient one of the useful factors for us was each other you know actually leaving the office and saying i'm going now are you going um whereas you're not getting that in the online world and we were talking about actually managers having responsibility for texting people at five o'clock and saying your day's finished that actually putting it on into individuals to uh to manage themselves in that way is difficult when you can't see what other people are doing. You don't know whether your colleagues are still working to 8.30 and then there's a guilt involved in clicking, clocking off at 5.30. Whereas if you can send out, I'm going home now, bye. Um, also talking to management about if they seriously want to address staff wellbeing, putting on an optional mindfulness class at lunchtime is a token effort. It's actually about how you structure your day that we expect to meet with you for coffee in the morning. And it's not a get out. We all going to do mindfulness together. It's part of what we do. If we give it as a, an opt in or an opt out, we often find that the people who are most stressed and most anxious won't turn up because they are anxious to get on with work. So if we really want to take care of our caregivers. We have to do that systemically, that this is how this organization operates. We meet together, we do mindfulness. It's not an option, it, it's our values so that we can be well to help the people we're helping. Thank you so much, Katie. I love that idea of like implementing the mindfulness and not just saying it, that was great. Um, Ellen, can you inform us of like your perspective on these three questions? Yeah, so um, in terms of rising distress experienced by students, you know, I think that it's a perfectly appropriate reaction to the world we live in today, picking up on the points that Katie made uh, when, when she spoke, because you know the truth is that pressures on students are increasing, the world is increasingly insecure, people don't know if they're ever gonna be able to uh, get a job, earn an income, own a home, uh, then you've got you know, climate change, the end of the planet, and all the crises of capitalism that, that we're living through. So it, it's a natural response that people uh, would be concerned about those things. But I think one, one thing that we, that we can do is to help people to, as I said earlier, understand what's happening and why. And I think Ian's point about the importance of collective responses was, was really important. And certainly through the, the 10 years, of, um, not that austerity is over, but um, where disabled people were having everything taken away from them, that collective experience of being engaged in resistance and fighting back against the government uh, definitely helped a lot of people to retain their sense of some form of, of, of autonomy and and hope like Ian said is incredibly important so getting more students involved in in political networks I think is really important and um, the question about big pharma yeah I share people's fears about that as well how much money is made how people are pushed towards medication because it's a cheaper option than giving people particularly people with complex trauma the levels of intensive support uh, that people need day to day um i would just say though that i think there is a lot of stigma that can exist about taking medication and uh i personally have gone through periods in my life where I don't want to be on it and then I'm on it and I've come to a position in my life where I think that if taking some form of medication even though big farmers benefiting from it helps me to keep going day to day under capitalist society we live in and to fight back against capitalism then for now I'm going to take it if it helps um 
and then lastly, Roddy's question about well-being and people working harder uh, remotely. That's definitely something I've observed as well. Meanwhile, a lot of disabled workers are finding that they're not being given reasonable adjustments that they need, um, adaptations, um, yet still being able to perform the same as other colleagues. And also the situation that I think particularly women are facing where they're having to work from home, but at the same time do their the homeschooling for their children and then ending up feeling like failures because they can't do everything at once and the remote working creates problems of atomization but I think that what we can do is to de develop new ways of organizing among workers remotely and that's the disabled community as uh, people have had cuts and it's meant that people are increasingly limited and actually being able to leave their homes uh, have kind of developed different networks for doing that. So I think that is possible and that we can do that going forwards. Brilliant, thank you, Ellen. And that brings us close to our questions. Thank you so much to all of our speakers. That was really insightful. I know I've enjoyed it. I hope you guys at home and viewing have really enjoyed it as well. That was brilliant. And if you really enjoyed this meeting, I encourage you to join us next week where we have another treat of a meeting. Um, next week's meeting, we will have a discussion on after Corbyn, where now for the labor and the left. We will have brilliant speakers such as Leo, Panish, who is a co-editor of the Socialist Register and the author of Searching for Socialism, and Alice Kalenkos, who is the author of The Revolutionary Ideas of Karl Marx. So a meeting that you don't want to miss, make sure you put it in your diaries next week, same time same place over all our platforms super exciting um my second announcement is just going to be we know that in these times that businesses and lots of people have struggled um we want to pay a little shout out to something that's quite beloved and close to our hearts in the socialist workers party and that's our beloved bookmarks bookstore which is a socialist independent bookstore and we want to keep it running um, so they are still delivering books so if you are looking for new material to read you can find two of our speakers books in their fantastic board library Ian Ferguson's book on the a politics of mind Marxism and mental distress and Ellen Clipper's book as well um, on the war on disabled people both of those books you can find there and a brilliant library of books I know I've been ordering stuff so if you can that would be such a great support um, so that we can keep bookmarks running um, and then my third and final announcement is that if you've resonated if you've enjoyed if you feel touched about anything that you've heard today I'd really encourage you to join us join the socialist worker party join the revolution join a uh, unity and solidarity of workers across all races and ages and genders who are really fighting about back against this system the link is down below um i hope you all have a lovely rest of the long weekend and enjoy the sun and um, that's goodbye for me find up-to-date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty, on Twitter at swpbritain, Instagram is socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes.